Hello, I am Pete Real, a high school English and Spanish teacher, an avid reader, and an aspiring writer. Thank you for listening to the Chills at Will podcast, in which we explore the visceral beauty of literature and its connection to our culture, our history, and ourselves. Welcome to episode 210 of the Chills of Will podcast. It's a pleasure today to be joined by Dan Sinekin. Here's a bit about Dan. He's an assistant professor of English at Emory University with a courtesy appointment in quantitative theory and methods. He is the author of American Literature and the Long Downturn, Neoliberal Apocalypse from 2020. His writing has appeared in the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Los Angeles Review of Books, the Rumpus, Dissent, and other publications. Big Fiction, How Conglomeration Changed the Publishing Industry in American Literature is out as of October 6th through Columbia University Press. Whew. Good evening. How are you today? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing well, thanks. And uh, these, uh, I guess, maybe more so nonfiction, definitely more nonfiction. They got some pretty long titles these days, huh? <laughs> yeah, they, you know, in academia and the university presses, um, they like to make sure that something of the argument of the book is in the title somewhere. Uh -huh. uh, and so that that can, they want to get all the keywords, you know, and yeah. so that can stretch them out a bit. All right. So who do we blame slash credit for that as far as, uh, you know, all these big publishers you talk about in the book? Was it? Was oh, it goodness. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's that. So this is it's funny because I, I I published my book with the university press, right. and that's a whole separate thing huh. than um than I only touch very lightly right. in the book on university presses because they don't tend they're not they don't do a lot of fiction you know they're very right. very 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 few works of fiction come out of that sphere, mm -hmm. um so there needs to be a whole other book just about university presses. <laughs> Well, it's, it's, it's a pleasure to talk to you. I saw that you posted on the 6th. We're talking today on October 9th. Posted on the 6th that the book was out. Like, was that like a surprise? Like, what do I know? But I'm thinking like always, always Tuesdays. Was the book out kind of like half out on the 6th? It comes out for real on the 10th? Or how, how does that go? Yeah, it's um, the official publication date isn't until October 24th. Yeah. But and which is a Tuesday, okay. um, but the book is out, and you know I actually don't know what the reason for that is. I know production went fast, okay. so you know everything went smoothly, and the books were sitting in the warehouse ready to go. Mm. And so I think someone just said, "Well, you know, we've got the pre-orders. <laughs> let's just let's just press press the button and let the books sail out." Um, and, uh, and then, you know, we still have our official pub date on the 24th. We'll see okay, what happens. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's so meta, right? This idea that like, and you're talking, I'm thinking of that. I can't think of the name, but the Tennessee publisher you wrote about in the book, you know, who really revolutionized things like, you know, that type of person, like, you know, with your book, just like, ah, let's, let's send it out. Yeah, no, there's, there's a part in the book that you're talking about where I, um, where I where I described the revolution in wholesaling, which mm -hmm. changed the whole publishing industry about how books get from publisher publishing houses, well, from the printers really to retailers, um, and that changed everything about how 
we people how regular everyday people get our books right um and that was a that was a product of the 70s um and uh yeah i believe i believe ingram uh carries my distributes my book uh oh, so <laughs> it is meta there's all this stuff right? where 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 uh i'm talking about the making and distribution of books and <laughs> here it is con <laughs> condensed in the book that you're holding there it is if you can see mine uh, this is the, the the proof but uh, uh so is the cover going to be the same or yes it is okay the same cover it's a it's a homage to uh these covers from the 1980s that have a kind of cult following hmm. um from uh vintage contemporaries which was their yes. big book was um bright lights big city by jay mckinnerney mm -hmm. um and it it had a it had the same kind of design as my book's cover um and it was a pretty important series in the history of contemporary literature so mm -hmm. we decided we'd um we tip the hat uh, i love the homage i love it i know like you're kind of in this nether world with you know officially the 24th like kind of like a restaurant right? like a soft opening on the 6th and the you know, official one with the, the ribbon cutting, the whole deal. What kind of feedback have you gotten on the book so far? Oh, it's been great. It's, it's, it's been really warm. Um, I was just in Seattle. I live in Atlanta, but I was just in Seattle for a conference and there was, uh, I got to go out to dinner with a group of booksellers. Seattle is such an incredible bookish city. Yeah, it is. Um, love it and i uh and and i got to go out the night before on the 5th uh with with booksellers from some of the big bookstores in town and we just talked industry and uh. swapped stories all night and then the next day i went into one of the bookstores to um with of one of the booksellers i'd been at dinner with to see the book on the shelf because uh, uh it's just a special feeling to see the book on a bookstore shelf for the first time yes. And I went in and I saw the book and they had the the, the cover facing out. And it was lovely. And as I was browsing some other sections, I overheard a bookseller, a, someone, a different bookseller, someone I didn't go to dinner with. Mm -hmm. uh, a bookseller doesn't know me. Um, convince a customer to buy my book. <laughs> yes. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Which was mind blowing yeah. to see, to kind of overhear uh an old fashioned you call it hand selling uh, uh the the bookseller hand sell my book right there that day oh man that is so cool you know much more than i do about seattle but i think of like i don't know, gabby bates the poet mm -hmm. I, I think she i mean she literally works at the bookstore you imagine going in and getting like curated um you know curated recommendations from such a great writer like that I know <laughs> it's Seattle. Seattle's got a great literary scene. So yeah, it's, you know, a lot, so many of those bookstores you walk in and you got a lot of knowledge in those shelves. Hmm. So most of, most of the book talking about big fiction, of course, most of the book is in third person, but you know, you do talk about your, you know, your own personal um, experiences at times. And so I want to say growing up in Minnesota, is that right? That's right. Yeah. So, you know, you talked about how it was a bookish family and before vacations, you know, you go to Barnes and Noble and get, you know, get your favorite books, you know, for the trip and all that. And I'm going to probably butcher the name, but you talked about really being into Zant. That's right. Okay. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Okay. Right. And I guess kind of like, like a lot of us and again, kind of meta goes into the book, this whole idea of like, almost like being a literary hipster. No, this is my style. This is my aesthetic as the kids would say these days. I, you know, I read differently than you, whether it's my friend, your friends, your brothers, your family. I kind of wonder about about Xanth and the early reading. And then you talked about how you kind of 
branched out into more like East Coast, Fitzgerald, and then we'll talk about maybe Pinchon. But just kind of like your early reading and what really inspired you and challenged you and made you want to be a reader and probably a writer. Yeah. So when I was real young, when I was five, six, seven, my dad, uh, my dad is a, a boomer who like was in college in the early seventies when Lord of the Rings was like mm. the campus book, like yeah. college kids, every all the college kids in the country. It was like these counter, they were taken up as like counterculture mm. um campus not college novels sure. um and so my dad was you know grew attached to them in, in college in the 70s and then he read them to me um in the 80s uh in the late 80s when i was when i was growing up um and i loved them i loved them as a little kid and then um and then when i was a, a tween when i was 12 11 12 13 mm-hmm. uh i went to the barnes noble which was uh, the first one launched as a superstore, uh, which was the one near where I grew, grew up um, in the Twin Cities. Okay. Uh, and I would go and buy these books from Piers Anthony's Xanth series. Mm. And unbeknownst to me, uh, this was, I was kind of the perfect consumer uh, that that the industry was expecting me to be with the Xanth books because they were designed for people who had first got hooked through uh, on reading through Tolkien and uh, uh, Lord of the Rings. And in the after my dad was reading those books in the in the early 70s, the publishers were like, how can we capitalize on this craze for for Tolkien? Um, and, uh, that finally an editor, um, named Lester Del Rey came up with this idea of, of doing formulaic fantasy that was very similar or had drew a lot of, uh, it's, 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 um, genre from the Lord of the Rings, Mm -hmm. um, but made it a bit more formulaic and then could sell it in series to the chain bookstores, first Wallen Books and B. Dalton and then Barnes and Noble. Um, And so, and and one of the first people he published was Piers Anthony uh, in his series. And he's like, he's like, look, Piers, here's here's what I want you to do. Here's the kind of formula for the thing. I think it's going to sell a lot of books to a lot of people out there who love the Lord of the Rings. And we're going to... uh, and we're going to sell a bunch of these. And so he's still writing them. He's written, he wrote, I think it's like his 45th or 47th Whoa. this in 2023. Um, started in 1977. And so 1994 or so when I picked him up, he was, you know, just kind of in the middle, still kind of early on compared to today. Yeah. But yeah, so I got, I got really into the kind of fantasy genre stuff that was everywhere in the 80s and 90s. Wow. Uh, I sound like you're maybe a couple years younger than me, but I'm thinking of that whole, I mean, almost like fan fiction in, in that way, right? Xanth, I mean, no, it's not literally fan fiction, but this idea you talk about like picking up on a formulaic. And towards the end of the book, end of big fiction, you write about how Twilight was like, in a way, fan fiction, right? Something about the best-selling. Yeah, no, so so uh, actually, you might be thinking of um, Fifty Shades of Grey. That's what I was going to ask you. I, I think it was, you said something like one of the best-selling books, I forget the exact term of the 21st, you know, this part of the 20th century, 21st century, was fan fiction basically from Twilight. I just wanted, I was basically the long way of getting to asking you, was that Fifty Shades of Grey? That was Fifty Shades of Grey, Sorry, yes. that was a long way of getting to a simple question. <laughs> so as you got into, you know, kind of more of the East Coast writers, the Fitzgeralds, you know, I know Hemingway's from, what, Ohio, uh, Idaho? No. He died in Idaho. I can't remember where he started. Chicago, more like Midwest, right, more Chicago area. But 
but just East Coast, like, was it more of like an escapism? Was it more like, hey, I can travel the world? Was it like a fascination with the East Coast specifically? What kind of drew you to the Fitzgeralds, the Hemingways, the Conroys? I assume Conroy is the, the Frank Conroy. He's the one you referred to in the book. Yeah, it must be. I was growing up in the suburbs. Mm-hmm. In the 90s was when I was a teenager. Um, and these were, uh, this was a period of um, kind of between the, the fall of Soviet Union and 9-11. Um, and there's this kind of period of, you know, America is the sole superpower and we're going to tell her we're going to you know control everything and tell our kids that we can they can do anything they want and uh there was this kind of projected optimism Mm. uh onto us as teenagers at the time um and i was i i think i was drawn to dark humor in part in reaction to that Mm. um some of the the dark humor especially of thomas pynchon and Gravity's Rainbow. Um, but I was also drawn to something different than the the, the suburban culture where I grew up. Um, it was full of great novels by James Mishner, mm-hmm. Leon Uris, um, Stephen King, who I still love. But that sort of stuff I was I was re- a lot of stuff that we might consider m- get called middle brow and that that can be a descriptive term. It doesn't need to be a term of criticism. Sure. Um, but I this was stuff my parents were reading and in a kind of classic teenage rebellion, I was like, I don't want to read the things that my parents are reading or that my parents are giving me. And I want to get out of this suburban mm-hmm. boring cookie cutter place. I want something weird. I want something dark. Mm-hmm. I want something difficult. Um, I want something that is going to help me distinguish myself from this place Um, and so I started looking for things that the people around me weren't reading. Um, and I thought that made me special, uh, (laughs) even though these are, you know, mass commodities that were widely read by so many other people. But at the time that was what it was, it was important to me that I was, I was finding a way as a 16 year old to be different. Sure. That makes sense. What was it about Gravity's Rainbow that really, uh, just flipped you on? It was so difficult, like nothing I'd ever read before, but it wasn't, you know, there are things that could have been so difficult, like there could be technical manuals that are so difficult that doesn't mean I'm going to keep wanting to read them. Mm -hmm. There was something about the difficulty that I nevertheless could get glimpses of meaning and glimpses of humor and glimpses of things that I want. Like, it felt like there was a challenge that would pay off. I could see from the beginning that this was something that if, if I worked at it, there might be something really satisfying hmm. um, at the other end of that work. Mm-hmm. And the more I spent, I, I read, I, I I picked that one up when I was 17 and I'd been kicked, I'd just been kicked off the cross country running team in high school. Mm-hmm. I'd earlier been kicked off the marching band. I just quit my job. And so I wasn't like, I didn't like have anything going on. So I would just go home from school every day with Gravity's Rainbow and lay on the couch and read it until I fell asleep. And then I'd wake up and I'd see what the page would be on my face and I'd pick it up and I'd keep reading it. And I read the first hundred pages and I didn't know what was going on. So I started reading it over from the first page again. Mm. And I read the first hundred pages a second time. And I got, you know, I'd get a hundred pages in. I'd be like, I really, really 
Like I, there's something like this book is really exciting and funny and, and I can get glimpses of things, but I still don't know what's going on. So I did that five times. And so then I was like wow. on the fifth, fifth go round back to the beginning again, when I got to page a hundred, the fifth time round, I was like, okay, mm. I think I've got a handle on this book enough that I can keep reading it. Um, and by that point, like I, you know, it was almost starting to kind of memorize some of the things that were like mm -hmm. the passages in the first hundred pages. And it was starting to like, some of the opacity was clearing up for me. And when it cleared up, I was laughing and I was be feeling moved and I was feeling this kind of great satisfaction of having accomplished something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's a book that's that is juvenile and silly, but also like it's very serious about war and love and death and the military industrial complex. Dude, yeah, I I may be wrong. I feel like David Foster Wallace talked a lot about was it Lot Forty Nine? Is that what it's called? Crying a Lot Forty Nine. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Right, like that was a really like formative uh, book for him. I wonder about as you continue to high school, college. You know, I know you know David Wallace was huge. At that time, late '90s, early 2000s, with with Infinite Jest and you know his his story collections or his his essay collections and such, and kind of just like you wouldn't call him like a bro novel, a bro. I guess you would maybe depending on your your definition of like bro. Oh, it's very contentious. It's yeah, very contentious. right. And maybe we won't necessarily go into that, but just I just wonder about whether it was Wallace or what else you were really reading as you got into college and and into your young adulthood. Yeah, I was I, I read Wallace, you know, once people found out that I was into pension, they said, you got to read Wallace. Um, and I read Wallace and he I liked him. I liked his stuff. Uh, I, some of his stuff, I like some of the stories in Oblivion, story, short story collection, Oblivion, good old neon. I loved mm. um, eventually it would be a few more years until Pale King came out. I liked that a lot. Infinite Jest, I always, I've spent a lot of time with it. I wrote about it in my first book. I read about it in this mm -hmm. book. Um, I've wrestled with it a lot. Um, there's a, it's, it's a, it's a fascinating book to wrestle with. It's not a book that I love. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I was reading Wallace. I was reading DeLillo. Um, I was reading Virginia Woolf. Mm -hmm. uh, I was reading Joyce. I was reading, um, uh it'd be a couple more years before i was reading baldwin mm. those are some of the writers that were for formative for me in yeah. those co college years and also a lot of philosophers honestly uh, uh -huh. wittgenstein ludwig wittgenstein was was a really important writer for me um at that time as was soren kierkegaard i know that um yeah wallace writes a lot about wittgenstein as well i haven't had a chance to you know i know it's pretty heady stuff it's very heady stuff. Yeah. yeah, no, no. His novels are really like his first novel, Broom of the System. There's a character. Oh, God, it's been so many years now mm -hmm. that I'm going to probably butcher what it is. But there's a character who's, uh, I think, just a big Wittgenstein fan, okay. maybe. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I maybe learned about it kind of secondhand through the the biography of, of Wallace. I feel like I can't think of the anyways. DT um, Max. Thank yeah. you. Thank you. I knew it was a short name. <laughs> thank you. If I can, an un unsolicited recommendation would be not to read his book on hip hop. Talking about David Foster. <laughs>
not <laughs> good good advice yeah, good advice yeah maybe i'll do the same thing as you did and read it you know read it another four times and maybe finally understand it and find but probably not probably not first reading yeah 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 um in doing the the kind of work you do it's it's you know it's quantitative right i mean i think of like right brain left brain you know reading and fiction and 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 creativity as well as quantitative which is you know objective and number based and i know you can explain it much better than i can and even just you know doing the big fiction book and, and as well as your first book is there does it change the way you read maybe that's an obvious yes but does it does it change some of the pleasures of reading or does it you know, being that you've kind of see how the sausage is made, so to speak, and you know about the publishing industry and you've studied it. Um, I wonder if that changes the way you, you know, pleasure read or just read in general. Yeah, I, I absolutely, it must have. This is something that I, that is really core to my own method, actually, in the book where I talk to lots of people. I think about a bunch, I, I interviewed a bunch of people. I, I read a lot of people's accounts of what happened. And it's really important to me not to trust people's self-reporting. <laughs> sure, sure. I think we don't know ourselves very well. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, I don't know how well I can even accurately report whether writing this book has changed my experience. I still read for pleasure all the time. Mm -hmm. um, and I can still get lost in a narrative and I can mm -hmm. still like enjoy the sumptuousness of language. Sure. Um, I still, it's still like the primary thing I want to do with my leisure time. Mm -hmm. Like I never have enough time for reading. Uh, all, you know, I'm an English professor. I just wrote a book about books and I'm like, <laughs> man, when am I going to get a chance to sit down and do some more reading? That's what I really want to do. Right yes. Seriously. I appreciate that. When you do have a chance to read these days, who are some of the current writers, fiction, nonfiction, poetry, philosophy, who knows that you're really into? Yeah, uh, I read a, a great book recently by Martin Riker called The Guest Lecture, which is a weird, funny kind of academic novel um, mm -hmm. that I really enjoyed. Dan Coyce wrote a novel called Finch Contemporaries about the publishing industry, about... Okay. Uh, the, the, it's named after the, the book series that my cover of my book is an homage to. So I had to read it. Mm. Um, and I, I really enjoyed it. Um, I'm currently reading Samuel Delaney's Dahlgren, which is a classic okay. epic science fiction novel from 1975 that I've been meaning to read for years. Mm -hmm. Um, and I've cracked about 40 pages in it so far and so far so good. Um, uh, I'm, I'm really loving that. And, uh. So, so yeah, I'd say, I'd say those, those are uh, just a few that come off the top of my head that I've picked up recently. Renee Gladman from Dorothea Publishing Project is another one, The Event Factory, that I enjoyed quite a bit. Hmm. Is there one or two that sticks out that your students really enjoy or get into? Well, I read, I taught a course last spring uh, called Very Contemporary Literature, hmm. and we taught, we, we discussed four novels. Um, and the ones that they liked the best were Fernanda Melchor's Hurricane Season, okay. an absolutely terrific, harrowing Mexican novel um, from a few years back, published by New Directions in the U.S., um, that is that I can't recommend highly enough. Just mm. phenomenal. And we also read the first two volumes of Jan Foss's Septology, okay. uh, and we did that last spring. Um, and he just won the Nobel Prize. 
Um, I was going to say, if someone wants to win the Nobel, see see who's on your reading list first, huh? There you go. Oh, there you go. So yeah, yeah, we uh, that that septology is a very strange, wonderful. Uh -huh. I think it's a I think it's a, a terrific book. So I would you know uh, tell folks to go check that out. We also read Rachel Cusk's Second Place, which is excellent. Oh, okay, yeah. They liked all of those. Yeah, my yeah. students liked all of those. But I think hurricane season, they probably they would say hurricane season was was their their favorite yeah. on the list. And uh, uh, it it blew blew all of us away. Yeah, oh, I, I like that. It's not just contemporary. It's very contemporary. The name. Of the yeah. Book. All right. So the book is called Big Fiction, How Conglomeration Changed the Publishing Industry and American Literature. And, you know, people are probably listening to this on around the 24th. It comes out officially on the 24th. There may be some copies out there in the world. Um, I would love to know maybe some of the seeds for the book. So the seeds for the book are in the seeds of who I am as a as a reader and some of the stuff we've already been talking about. So like I was thinking about why I've been shaped as a person by the books I've read and the books that were around me in my mm -hmm. life. And I began to wonder as I'm reaching middle age, as I'm firmly now in middle age, uh, why, how did I become the person that I am? What, why were these books, the books that were there rather than any other books? Um, you know, there's people have written thousands and thousands and thousands of books. Um, why were these the ones, why were Vonnegut and Heller and hmm. Missioner and Uris, uh, the ones that my parents had bought, um, ended up in my home? Um, why did I pull Gravity's Rainbow off the bookshelf? Mm -hmm. And so that that got me wondering about how books make it from a writer to a reader and the long path that they take and all the steps they need to take to get to through that journey. Um, and that's a journey through the publishing industry. I appreciate that. The introduction starts with, help me with the pronunciation, Andre Schifrin? Andre Schifrin, yeah. Right. So he was fired in 1990 um, from, I guess it was Random House that had, he'd initially been with Pantheon and came to Random House or was it vice versa? So one of the wonderful confusions of the conglomerate era, which mm -hmm. is topic of my book, is that um, <laughs> has conglomerates suck up more and more other publishers, you get publishing houses that contain many, many imprints. Yes. Um, and so you have many publishers that are so pantheon was purchased by random house right in 1962 i think okay. um and uh andre schifrin was employed uh, at pantheon within random house for his career is it correct i want to say lisa lucas is now pantheon yeah the wonderful right. amazing important that lisa lucas is now at the head of pantheon uh where andre schifrin once upon was at the very least, follow her online. She's a great follow. Um, okay, yeah. So the imprints, right? So this idea of the umbrella organizations, the bigger ones. You know, Penguin's got what two hundred fifty some imprints. Good God, I can't. I lose count. <laughs> you know, with, with the podcast, you know, times all that. You know, hey, you know, so and so's book. It's under this. You know, it's under Penguin, but it's not. It's under this imprint. And oh my God, you know. And if you're trying to like, you know, tag them on Insta social media, it's just a, a maze, right? Yep. <laughs> I wonder what, why you, you positioned the book. I love the idea. I guess it would be like a, almost like an in medias res, right? Where you start the book kind of in the middle. It goes from, I don't know, this 1959 or so to now. Not that it's you know, chronological all the time, but somewhere in the middle of 1990. I wonder kind of why you start the book in 1990 with Andre Schifrin's firing. Why it was so pivotal 
Yeah, it's it's this it is pivotal. It is this dramatic moment in the history of publishing. And it's a moment that I think crystallizes so many of the concerns that my book takes up. And Schifrin himself is a figure that crosses uh, throughout the book and reappears over and over again. So I wanted to introduce him right from the start has this kind of um this kind of through line that readers could follow. Um, and so the scene that we begin with is, yes, February in 1998. It was, in fact, the coldest day of the year 1990, Whoa. the day that he was fired. Um, and it was a, a, a moment that was really shocking to a lot of people in the publishing industry. There were, were protests outside of Random House headquarters uh, mm. against the firing of Andre Schifrin. There were op-eds published in the New York Times. There were, uh, you know, people were, it was, the, it was the conversation in the book world and beyond the book world even. Um, and you, so you had like Studs Terkel and Kurt Vonnegut and Oliver Sacks, like, you know, marching with placards, you know, mm. saying, Mm -hmm. don't fire Schifrin because um, Schifrin had been fired by the, the new president of Random House uh, Alberto Vitale um, who uh, came in to replace the longtime president Bob Bernstein who'd been there for decades mm -hmm. who had really protected Random House and Knopf and Pantheon mm -hmm. from the, the corporate overlords um, and allowed Pantheon and Knopf and Random House to do a lot of things that they might not have been able to do if there hadn't been his, him, if he hadn't been there to be a buffer. And finally, they, the corporate bosses fired him and brought in Vitel. And one of the th first things Vitel did was fire Schifrin, who'd been there for nearly three decades and had published so many important books that were extremely, um, you know, that were extremely uh, important to many people, Michel Foucault, E.P. Thompson, John Berger, um, uh, Julio Cortazar, mm. uh, Marguerite Dura, like it's it, these these books that were um, just kind of culturally um, touchstones, crucial. Right? Yeah, yeah, touchstones. Yeah. And, and so to see him just so casually fired it was the sign to folks that the conglomeration, this process that had been creeping for decades, mm -hmm. um, might be uh, gaining a, a, a real dangerous chokehold. Right. So, I mean, it, it seems like going back a little bit, some seeds of the book, too, maybe based on like the program era, that book, or I'm not, is that the exact title, but the book that talks about um, the program era, I think about MFAs. Was that also? That's like right. That's yeah. right. That's a great book by the scholar Mark McGurl called The Program mm -hmm. Era. Okay. Um, yeah. yeah. Which was all about how the rise of the creative writing program mm -hmm. transformed American literature. Sure. Cause it's really a it's a, by and large a, a phenomenon after World War II. Um started with Iowa, which remains the most mm -hmm. important writing workshop, um, but followed up early on by some others and by the you know, 70s, 80s, 90s had really become um core to what was happening with mm -hmm. American literature. So he wrote a book about that. There's a great book by James F. English um, called The Economy of Prestige. Mm. That's about the institution of literary prizes, about the Booker Prize, the National Book Award, the Pulitzer, yeah. and what that has done to shape American literature. And sure. both of these books are part of this larger, um, what's called the institutional turn or the new institutionalism mm. um, in literary studies where scholars are paying attention to the to the institutions that have shaped our literature 
Um, and so my attention to the, the history of publishing is very much in that school of thought. Sure. So February 1990 was so pivotal. Uh, you know, obviously, um, that was a great month with as far as being my 10th birthday. But besides, that, <laughs> one, huh? oh, man. So 1990, yeah, Andre Um, When you talk about the program and, and, you know, Iowa, especially, right, I, I'm sorry to keep going back to Wallace, but I think about in the um, in the cruise ship, uh, you know, essay, the famous, very supposedly fun thing. He's so disappointed, Wallace is, because there's like a, it's basically an advertisement, but it's um, but it's from Conroy, you know the the famous guy from from Iowa and all that. He was the director of the Iowa Writers Workshop. Right, at the time. and he yeah. writes it as kind of a, as an advertisement that they try to like couch as something you know totally natural, and that made it doubly disappointing for Wallace. You write about how E. Schifrin is like a kind of like a polemic about maybe 10 years after he'd been fired, kind of calling out names type of thing in the industry and all of that. And you were kind of saying it seemed like he maybe maybe that wasn't even enough time or he kind of needed more perspective or he's too close to it emotionally. Do you feel like your book is in some way a continuation of of his of his work? It's a continuation of his work. And his work really um, stands for a lot of how people thought about conglomeration in publishing for a long time. Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of fights about whether or not the debate since the 70s um, has been about whether conglomeration is good or bad, a kind of moral take on it, um, or an aesthetic take on it has been good or bad sure. for books. Um, and I tried as a scholar, I think it's important and valuable to be able to, I think polemics are important. And I think it's also valuable as a scholar to be able to step back from that and mm. say, let's investigate the implications of these changes. Let's see what happened if we pay close attention um, to how conglomeration shifted the work of editors and agents mm. and marketers and publicists. And let's start to look at the books that they that they published and let's start to analyze what's happening at scale. And let's look at some of those consequences without without immediately jumping to the question of whether or not what's happened is good or bad. Yeah, you know, you definitely pull that off. It's 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 informational. It's, you know, here's here's it's not necessarily good or bad, it's different, right? I mean, is what you're, mm -hmm. what you're saying is it's different and here's how it's different. You you know, you break the book into basically five chapters and a conclusion. Early on, you again, please help with the word. You talk about the colophon as the colophon, yeah, colophon, right? These this idea of the the colophon as collective. What what is the colophon, and how did um, how does that kind of uh, connect to your book? So, uh, colophon can mean two things. One, if you if you ever look at your bookshelves or go in a bookstore and look at the shelves, and you look at the bottom of the books, the spines facing out to you, um, yeah, you can see that there's a little image down there on the bottom, um, and that image is uh, is the little logo for a press, uh, but it's also called a colophon. And so, for mm -hmm. Columbia University Press, which published my book, it's a little geogra uh, geometric crown. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, and that 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 image that colophon, um, I 
I, I make that symbolically important for big fiction because one of the key things that I'm doing, one of my main interventions, one of my big hopes for the book mm. is that I'm able to change our sense of what an author is, what it means to be an author mm. and to put the author back into her context of the publishing industry that helps bring her books into the world. I think we overestimate put outsize attention mm. on the figure of the author. Um, and, and, and this is tied back to a kind of romanticism coming out of the actual ro romantic period mm. uh, where we have a kind of fantasy about individual genius sure. uh, and, and creativity that we want to valorize, that we love, that I love. Some, I, I'm, I'm a sucker for it myself sometimes, but mm -hmm. it's a myth. It's by and large a myth. And there are dozens of people who help bring the books that we read to life. Um, and there are all sorts of forces that are shaping the kinds of ways people write, the kinds of stories they tell, the style with which they write. Um, and those forces are deeply embedded in the colophon, in this mm -hmm. system of marketing, editing, mm -hmm. wholesaling, retailing, um, that has each of these has feedback loops that that cycle back to all the figures earlier in the production process, including back to the author who may or may not know. I think it's usually unconscious, but uh, successful authors are are able to internalize all of the different pressures of the publishing industry in order mm. to write books that can successfully navigate that industry and all the figures with their various constraints who need to handle their books, um, you know, help build them and get them to their audience. So it's a move from author to colophon. And it's, so, and the, my whole book is the gambit is what does it look like to read American literature through the colophon, mm. how 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 does Beloved look, or All the Pretty Horses, or Joan Didion's The Last Thing He Wanted, or Michael Crichton's, um, oh man, Disclosure, uh, mm. or Renata Adler's Speedboat, um, or Fight Club. You know, what do these books look like if we read them through the colophon? Um, and I think it's revelatory and exciting to see what happens. You picture Marquez supposedly was on a was in Mexico on a, going on vacation, had the ideas for Hundred Years of Solitude, and turned the car back around and went and wrote, you know, for twenty four feverish hours, right? And Hemingway had a couple bottles of some alcohol, probably right, and, and fueled his genius. And Wallace with his headband and all that. And you picture like the like you said these these romanticized ideals, but there's so many hands in, involved, right? Like so many. That that's exactly right. And so that's what I try to do across the book is I, I, I open up these stories. I open up the stories of Infinite Jest, say, to, since we've been talking about Wallace in the introduction, I talk about Infinite Jest. I talk about his relationship to his agent. I talk about his editor, Michael Peach, who is now the executive at Hachette. Um, one of the big five publishing houses. He was always, you know, we think of David Foster Wallace as a pretty artsy writer. His mm -hmm. editor, Michael Peach, was always a fairly commercial guy. He would do mm -hmm. um, music biographies and he was not interested in books that didn't sell a lot. He really, he was pretty clear. He wanted books that would be commercially successful. Mm -hmm. um, and this was a tension, you know, Peach and, and, and Wallace from all accounts got like, got along well and uh, had a good professional relationship. Mm -hmm. But it was, it was a, 
uh, it was also like a struggle and a contention because the two of them had different priorities. Uh, Wallace and the, it, Wallace talks about this um, in letters, and and you can find stuff in his archives about how the process of creating the book was in part a process through the struggle mm -hmm. of of navigating the demand Michael Peach's demands to shape the book for Little Brown, who published it. Um, and its commercial interest in making it a successful book and Wallace's artistic vision. Um, and it goes deeper and further than, than just the relationship between the agent editor and Wallace. Wallace was publishing with Little Brown, which at the time was ultimately owned by Time Warner, right. uh, which was then the world's largest conglomerate, entertainment conglomerate. And Infinite Jest is a novel about entertainment at its core and the danger of entertainment to the American nation. And his book was published by the greatest purveyor of entertainment, which was not something that was lost on David Foster Wallace. He was well aware of the fact that he was doing this and the, and the head of Time Warner in the years when David Foster Wallace was writing Infinite Jest was talking about like devices like proto YouTube devices to mm. install on in people's homes, which is also a device that Wallace writes about satirically in Infinite Jest. Mm. So there's this tension that he's he's fighting about with his editor. There's also these tensions uh, that he's dealing with artistically in the book having to do with the ownership of the publishing house with which he's publishing it. And all of this is shaping the book itself. And I think mm -hmm. it's a really epic and wonderful story that deepens our experience of the novel. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, it's, it's not just Wallace in his headband sitting alone mm -hmm. with his slobbering dogs, mm -hmm. trying to figure, trying to come up with like, disembodied genius that of a, of a story that he can tell that will blow our minds. Well, only he can tell, right? He's down there in the muck and the mud with all these other figures in the publishing industry. And it's mm -hmm. out of that contest mm -hmm. uh, with Time Warner. And it's out of that contest with Michael Peach that the book finds its shape. Yeah. And that DT Max uh, biography, there, I, I do remember so much about those letters back and forth. And oh, man, you know, I think writing to maybe to Franzen, Jonathan Franzen. And oh, man, he took this out and I wanted to keep this and just all that back and forth. And yeah, I mean, geez, the the meta levels of that book, like you said, with Time Warner being the one to promote it, it you know, a book that's about what infinite pleasure. You, like, well, didn't you say that? Didn't you write in the book that one of like the cards or promotional things they passed out said that you know the book was going to give you infinite pleasure? Yeah, no, this was this was this was the hype <laughs> campaign. This was the publicity campaign for yeah. Infinite Jest, which like it was very successful. It mm -hmm. was uh they they were trying to get the you know Michael Peach wanted everyone to buy the book. Um and so they did this hype campaign to start passing out little cards to bookstores and publicists long ahead of time where they give like you know they do a series of these and they they promise infinite this infinite that promise infinite pleasure mm. and to promise infinite pleasure from infinite chest is the you know the exactly the thing that wallace didn't want to mm. they, they, they was warning against so right. you've got this you know all the way from the beginning to the end uh it's it's a book that's that's built and and conceived and and produced through these tensions hmm. well i mean it's ironic that he's known as such like an iconoclast and eccentric and all that and we you know we wouldn't have known about him unless the book was a a popular blockbuster which it was right 
Exactly. And, and, and it was surely in part because of Peach's uh, handling of it. If Wallace had been left to his own devices without Peach and Little Brown um, and wrote a book that was an extra, you know, 600 pages and, and didn't get the, the marketing muscle of a major mm. publisher with uh, the world's largest conglomerate backing it, <laughs> um, you know, who knows? It's hard to say. Maybe it would have found its way out anyway, but it's yeah. highly unlikely and probably would not have been the famous book that it is today. Definitely. So I think so that part of the book, I think, is the end of the conclusion. The the five chapters are, you know, the first two are about mass market. This, uh, the third and fourth two trade uh, two about trade, the trade uh, market. And then the last one is basically about W.W. Norton as it kind of stands on its own. And then with the conclusion, you know, with with Amazon, the way it's changed the game and Kindles and kind of in recent years. Um, in the, the, in the, I mean, excuse me, the chapters about mass market, you know, there's a lot in there and throughout the whole book about this idea of like highbrow versus lowbrow. Like you said, mid, middlebrow doesn't have to be a, a pejorative, right? Mm -hmm. But this whole idea of, you know, there's always going to be people, and I'm sure this goes for any sort of art, right? They say, let's do, um, you know, the, the mass market paperbacks. You know, sure, more people can buy them now after World War II and this and that, you know, more disposable income, but it's lower level. This idea of culture and creativity and, and aesthetics and, and the elite. I wonder about what you kind of in your studies, what you found about mass markets and the way that they were really, again, couched or promoted as for the common man in a good way and for the common man in a negative way. Yeah, so, so they can be both. And really what shaped this is economic history. Mm -hmm. um, there was a turn in the, in the late 70s, uh, early 80s, that um, where mass market books went from, uh, there was a tendency to treat them more as democratizing um, mm -hmm. literature for everyone, uh, uh, you know, high literature or whatever, knowledge, good, you know, great, great works uh, for everyone, um, to in the late 70s, early 80s, making it more like, let's, 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 kind of publish entertainment for the lowest common denominator. Um, and the reason there's the, the reason why this happened has everything to do with the broad sweeps of economic history. After World War II, the United States saw the great one of the greatest periods, if not the greatest period of capitalist capitalist growth in the history of capitalism. Mm -hmm. The 1950s and 1960s were an extraordinary period of of um of increasing uh broadly felt prosperity. Um, and when that happened, that also coincided with the the invention and expansion of mass market books before mass market books, which didn't really uh, start growing until the 1940s in the U.S. It was hard for for most people in the United States to find books. Bookstores were not super common outside of the East Coast. If you were in an East Coast city, there were there were plenty of bookstores. But if you lived in other parts of the country, if you were mm. like a rural person or if you lived in a you know, mid-sized city in the, in the heartland, you know, it might be hard to find a bookstore and books weren't being, you know, shipped out like they, they Intel mass market books, they weren't being shipped out to like, you know, railroad stations or, or drug stores. What they had were pulp magazines. Mm -hmm. So it was in the 1920s, 1930s, 
that's what people, most people in the country were reading were pulp magazines if they wanted to read stories. Um, and so it was, it was with the mass market book in the 1940s that you started getting books shipped out to all those places across the country at a scale of, of you know, hundreds of thousands, where books might sell 5,000, 10,000, 15,000 copies. Mm. Now they were selling 100,000, 150,000 copies, and they were being sold in these cheap things, cheap, cheap little pocketbooks. And those were, the way some of those, those publishers were sending those out was to try to to try to um, bring William Faulkner and Ernest Hemingway and Virginia Woolf to everyone, hmm. this democratizing impulse, and that was possible in an era when there was rising prosperity for everyone, when there were yeah. like dreams of greater leisure time, when every the college was expanding rapidly. All the GI Bill soldiers were coming back and going to college. College was opening up to women and people of color. You had this vastly increasing pool of readers to read these books and you had publishers who wanted to, to get great books in their hands. Um, when, the, when the economy started closing down in the 70s with inflation and unemployment and you had all these conglomerates coming in and buying these previously independent publishing companies and insisting that they need to make profits for shareholders because shareholder value was newly this this dominant mode of governance for for large corporations that trickled down to the way that publishers had to think about the mass market it, you had people with less money because they because inflation was raising the price of books and you had fewer people had smaller discretionary budgets and the readerships weren't growing like they had been in the 50s and 60s and so how were you going to find ways to get people to pick up books well they started shifting to a blockbuster model of big big names that's when Stephen King and mm. Daniel Steele and Dean Koontz these people who are still on the bestseller list today they started being on being these names that you could count on for mass market sales in the late 70s and early 80s. And that's also when the genres of fantasy and romance exploded. Yes. Because you could get hack writers to write <laughs> series books of fantasy and romance and put them in the newly expanding chain bookstores, your Walden books and your B. Dalton's, and sell them uh, in ways that um, that the, the the that the the you know serious books weren't selling, and so that's when mass market turned into a game of entertainment. Yeah, it's all, like what do they call them in Hollywood? Like bankable stars, right? Like you know they're going to bring in a certain amount at the box office. Maybe that's changed now with streaming and all that. But you know, yeah, Daniel Steele. I, I mean, the book is not you know with the Colophon, you you obviously emphasize that it's not just about the author, but there's some really interesting. You do some really interesting biographizing, if that's a word, you know, giving giving details on the biographies. I just feel like she's been around since I've always known Danielle Steele. I don't I've never read anything by her. You know, what I mean, she's always been a part of the world. And she's older than story. both. She, she's right. been writing since before either of us was born. Exactly. <laughs> Um, and, you know, I thought I, 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 you know, I thought she might as well be, a, you know, an invention, like until mm -hmm. I started looking into her, I was like, Daniel Steele, like it, the name even seems so yes. fantastical that it's like, is this even like a real person? Or is this just kind of like a right. name that covers like a kind of factory or something? Uh -huh. um, but like she, yeah, she has this absolutely astounding life. I've become obsessed. I've become totally obsessed. <laughs> I've read a lot of her books. Um, and I, and her, her life story is phenomenal. And she was manufactured as a star mm -hmm. in the late seventies. Yeah. Um, and then she had to grapple with like becoming a brand Stephen King too. Like once these, these human beings, these writers with artistic mm -hmm. ambitions who mm -hmm. become brands, like then become worried that, that they are only brands. Right. 
Yeah, the, the, you would, I mean, it's almost like you, you kind of hint at the fact it's almost like a Harper Lee thing where she she read she wrote like what six books in a couple of years ago or 2016. Is yeah, like Daniel Steele. Yeah, Daniel Steele. You start. She's getting up there. She's I don't know. She's not too old yet. She's still in her mid seventies. But like okay. you know, you you I, I do mention you know at the end, Ghost Set of Watchmen to me is a real tragedy because it's yes. It, I don't think it's much more than a than a kind of subpart early draft of of mm -hmm. of. To Kill Mockingbird and you know Harper Lee it by most counts was not terribly with it when it when that came out it seemed like a real opportunistic um mm -hmm. uh, occasion to me and you start in and Daniel Steele's got a bizarre situation recently where for years she would publish one or two books a year mm. and then she she cranked it up to three and then in the last just like four or five years she's cranked it up to six and then seven so wow. so She's now she's now publishing seven books a year, and you know I've read a few of these recent ones, and they are definitely not as good as some of her mm. earlier stuff. Um, mm. I've since I've since I, I uh, finished writing the book, I've I've looked further into it, and I do think she's still writing them all herself. Okay. But I think I, I I I'm it's it's uh, I don't know why she's doing it at the speed. I don't know what's going yeah. on. Uh, but it's um, it's it's a fascinating situation. Mm. You write really interestingly about how about the idea of like prizes, like historical fiction, late maybe late seventies, early eighties. Correct me if I'm wrong. Really started to would start to win the awards, National Book Awards, and that kind of thing. And but they but it's just divergence where you know the Danielle Steels, for example, maybe not the most aesthetic. If you're going to ask a you know an intellectual or a you know high nose person or whatever, but those sell like hotcakes, as they would say back in the day. When, you know, the historical fiction, the ones that are maybe more for the critics, they're winning the awards, but they're not selling. I wonder if there's, was there almost like a, like a thumbing of the nose? Like, um, as in, we're going to like really exacerbate this, this divide between mass market, Vox Populi or whatever, and the ones that win the awards. Yeah, this is a phenomenon of I, that that is, we would say in the academy, dialectical. So when, mm -hmm. uh, which means that 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 one situation is acting off another situation, okay. creating a third situation. It's 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 these forces that are hitting each other. Um, and so when, as we just talked about, in the when the mass market went lowbrow, became more about entertainment. Mm -hmm. um, that and and as publishing was increasingly feeling the pressures of the bottom line in the 70s and 80s. It created a fear among many literary types that there was not going to be space in the publishing industry anymore for you know, what they would think of as serious work. Um, and even the phrase that we now use for that serious work, literary fiction, which we're all familiar with as a phrase, mm -hmm was not a phrase that was used prior to the 1980s. It was a mm. phrase that had to be invented in the 1980s to mark out this new space of distinction sure. separate from the mass market stuff. And that literary fiction is what you're talking about, the prize winning type books. And so this was sort of in response to the um, 
the the push to making literature like entertainment was this push back to say, well, if that's going to be the case, then we're going to, you know, make clear that there is this different distinct distinct space of prizes that is not going to be the same space as the high selling stuff. We're going to be a space that marks ourselves out specifically by not necessarily being the stuff that sells at the level of a, of a Daniel Steele. Now, that's not always the case. Sometimes yeah. you get these crossovers that are great with sales and prestigious, mm-hmm. um, but they tend to define themselves against each other in that way. I mean, I, I mean, you think it's the same same in music, right? You think of like, I don't necessarily follow the Grammys or even the Oscars that much, but you know, there's that year where it's like the movie that wins the Oscar, like nobody had seen it before. I mean, I'm obviously not literally nobody, but this idea of, yeah, the the artistic merit versus the versus what sells. As the book goes on, you kind of you kind of pose E.L. Doctorow as kind of like a, an in-between or as far as like kind of um, with a foot in kind of, I kind of like the old world of publishing and the new world. You talk about that speech he gives, kind of talking about the decline of the publishing industry, but also he he was prized, he was given prizes and he also had a at least one big time seller in ragtime, right? So I wonder just about Dr. Owen, kind of how he, kind of bridge that gap or you kind of bridge that gap between the high sales and the artistic merit and also maybe even how ragtime showed that manifested that yeah yeah so it's it's a it's it's this historical he he's a, a beautiful story because he helps illustrate the historical shift that i talk about in the book where really uh, the years right around 1980 are the divide between the old world of books and the new world of books and mm-hmm. we today live in the post 1980 world of books and ragtime was really the last great book of the old regime um so ragtime when it was published um was was if not the best-selling book of 1975 was one of the very top selling books of 1975 it was the lead title for random house of the year when random house was the you know has today was the biggest bookseller uh was the big, big, biggest publisher in america and um uh and it did it also did extremely well with the prizes i believe it won the national book award um and uh and that was uh that was kind of the cap of the post-war years as i understand it uh the time when there wasn't necessarily this uh, deeply embedded distinction between highbrow and lowbrow, between sales and prestige. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was a moment where E.L. Doctorow could 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 win it all. He could do all of the things, mm-hmm. and 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 really shortly after that, that all fell apart. Um, so even just a few years later, you had John Irving, who in I think it was the Hotel New Hampshire, um, was supposed to be a book like um, he was supposed to be a figure like Doctorow, and his novel was supposed to be a book like Ragtime, and it was given a massive advance, and it didn't earn out. And it didn't even come close to earning out. Um, and by the late 70s and early 80s, that's when all of the the kind of economic history, the recession, uh, the the extreme rise uh, in inter- interest rates be- under Paul Volcker, um, the pressures that this brings on the conglomerate owners of publishing houses to make more money, mm. um, all of this creates very quickly uh, uh, the changes that we were talking about in terms of moved figures like Stephen King and Daniel Steele and problems for writers like Dr. Rowe. And so for a few years in the early 80s, it becomes quite difficult to publish these, these literary writers uh, until Gary Fiskitjohn at Vintage Contemporaries, which is the paperback line of Random House, uh, at Vintage, that is to say, created the series Vintage Contemporaries, mm. um, which where he published 
he's like, he was trying to figure out how can I get around this problem? How can I publish these, these great writers who have these books that aren't selling, that aren't being picked up and aren't being published because it's really hard to sell literary fiction and hardcover right now um, because Walden books will only pick up books for their, for their chains. If you're doing a, a total print run, they want to pick up 10%. They want to sell at least, they want to pick up at least 10, 2000 copies. And if you're not doing a print run of 20,000 copies, they're not going to pick up the book and you're not selling, you're not printing literary fiction and hardcover at, at more than 5,000, 10,000. So he's trying to figure out how can we actually get the EL Doctoros back into business. And so that's where he comes up with the idea of let's create this flashy series with MTV style covers and let's uh, let's sell them as paperback originals. Let's not go to hardcover. Let's do straight to paperback. That way we can sell, that we can do straight runs of 20,000, 30,000 off the bat. They mm. can give them a real chance. So he does it with, with Jay McInerney, his college buddy from Williams. He does Jay McInerney's Bright Lights, Big City. It blows up. Everyone wants to do a paperback series after that. And that revivifies literary fiction right. for a time. But yeah, that's so anyway, Dr. Rose Rig Time was like the last great book uh, that succeeded on the old model. Hmm. In getting into like the trade chapters, you really it really interesting to me was the uh, the idea of auto fiction, you know, which is as old as as the world in some ways. But um, but it was kind of but it was a place where where women especially were could you know because of the sexism in the industry which you definitely charted you know in the in the in the boardroom as well as like the sales and all that but just a place especially for women you you reference like uh Lurie and Hardwick Philip Roth who I've I'm late to the game on and kind of want to get into and but I, you write about how he was friends with, with with sorry remind me of Lurie's first name Allison right um you know they were friends they were colleagues but he was also very I guess contemptuous of her as a woman in some ways. I don't know if that's too strong of a word, but you know, so just the idea that women found, I don't know, an escape or um, you know, a way to kind of point a finger at the industry, point a finger at society through autofiction. And in the same way, maybe uh, maybe not to the same extent, but you know, writers of color as well, others who were discriminated against or, or so I wonder about autofiction and how it kind of uh, functioned, especially for women, people of color. Yeah. So the industry in the 70s was super sexist super super sexist and just outrageously white mm. both in terms of the pe like the people working in the publishing industry and the books on their lists so you know through the 70s 80s and 90s the publishing lists of the of the of the fiction being published by the big corporate pu publishing houses by by most counts was more than 90%, sometimes well more than 90% white, 95% white, you know, really homogenous lists so this has, you know, real serious implications for the women and writers of color who wanted to write and the things that they could write. Mm. Um, women were expected to write women's fiction, maybe more sentimental fiction. Maybe they're mm. supposed to be mystery authors or children's writers. Mm -hmm. um, and someone like Philip Roth or, or some of these editors at Random House, like Jason Epstein, they expected women who wanted to write prize-winning fiction or serious fiction to write like men. That was pretty much their explicit expectation. Mm -hmm. um, and so you have serious writers like Alison Lurie um, or Renata Adler or Elizabeth Hardwick, who were all published with Random House, 60s, 70s, 80s, who were trying to figure out how to navigate a world with all of these pressures and expectations on who they were and what they could do. Mm -hmm. And so autofiction, writing about very thinly veiled 
if failed at all, um, real life was a way for them, but then calling it fiction was a way for them to expose some of the sexism of the industry, especially in the case of Alison Lurie's novel, Real People, which is a fictionalized account of the the writing colony Yaddo. Mm. Um, and with Adler and Hardwick, with the novel Speedboat and Sleepless Nights, just incredible, beautiful, slim, crystalline novels that were challenging the form of the novel itself. They were using autofiction to channel a new kind of thought, a new kind of voice, a new kind of formal experimentation mm. um, that was explicitly gendered um, mm. as a way to try to say, to try to kind of form a space, cut out a space for them to do something that was not necessarily what the men expected them to do. How could they, how could they be serious and a woman? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and they, the auto fiction gave them an avenue to do that work. You talk about the industries being so publishers being so hom- homogeneous and so, you know, so overwhelmingly white male. And so, you know, throughout the book, like Toni Morrison, for example, and, you know, but she's, she's so, Damned if you do, damned if you don't, right? Where she worked with, she worked with Random House, right? She did for for many years. Yeah, right. And so you know, even with that, you know, so, so she's making inroads, right? I mean, she's obviously incredibly well acclaimed and well awarded and well deserved. But it was like you know, there were people who would say, "Oh, well, you know, you're working, you know, you're working for the for the machine, so to speak," right? You write about um, you know the, some of the smaller presses and some of the nonprofits that come out in later years, which you know seemingly do have more independence. But then also it was like, okay, well, you know, who are the kind of writers of color maybe who are selling, you know, are they kind of being pigeonholed consciously or subconsciously by the publishers, you know, kind of a, again, dang if you do, dang if you don't. Um, So that was really interesting. You know, Percival Everett is one of those ones that I know is so well-respected in the industry. I know Erasure, again, is like a meta type of book, right? Where it's an auto fiction at the same time and all that, but just ideas of, um, I, I would think, and from the book, it does sound like a lot of these nonprofits, uh, Grey Wolf, that's what I'm thinking of, right? In particular, they have really good missions and philosophies, but they're not going to break, <laughs> this is the most obvious statement of the night, they're gonna break, not going to break up racism and sexism with with publishing, right? Mm-hmm. It's not enough. There's so many years of that, of those isms that have forced some of them to, you know, okay. Um, so I think maybe the kind of representative of that is the, is the writer who was in... Remind me of her name, please. Who was kind of in conversation with uh, with Maxine Hong Kingston? Yeah, yeah, Karen Tayyamashita. Right. I wonder about maybe how her um, her situations kind of show, you know, as an, in anecdotal form, kind of show that kind of push and pull and that pressure on writers of color and, and women. Absolutely. So writers of color um, in publishing have to, you know, there are kind of thin thin pathways through which mm-hmm. the publishing industry will, you know, the kind of, they, they expect certain kinds of performances from writers of color. And those, the, what those performances look like are different depending on if the publisher is a small nonprofit that is getting funded by philanthropists and foundations in the mm-hmm. government um, and has a little bit of freedom from some of the typical market constraints or, you know, a big conglomerate press. So the big conglomerate presses tend to want a certain kind of performance of racial authenticity um, perhaps a historical fiction, um, perhaps a kind of s- sentimental account of, I- of identity, um, identity formation, 
Um, and uh, the nonprofits, which is where Percival Everett and Karen Tayyamashita found themselves, have a, 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 a slightly different conditions that that mean that that these writers respond in different ways. Well, what, what I mean by that is they have missions, as you said. A nonprofit press has a mission. And those missions for Coffeehouse Press, which published Yamashita, or Grey Wolf Press that published Everett, um, indicated their embrace of diversity or multiculturalism. And as soon as that becomes formally part of the mission of the publisher, then when they publish Writers of Color, and this is all great and as it should be, nevertheless, there's this structural inevitability. There's this inescapable effect that a writer of color becomes a, a token. They're, they're a service mm. because of their identity mm. in as much as for the work that they're writing. Mm. And so for Everett and Yamasha, they are highly aware of this and they respond. There's two different ways that they and other writers of color at nonprofits have tended to respond to this scenario and they, and through the writing itself. And they tend to do one of two things, which is one kind of, satirize or ironize the condition of identity that they are performing mm -hmm. or look to the very conditions that make identity possible in the first place. Yamashita mm -hmm. is a great case because she does both in two different books. Right, right, right. She has this book, Tropic of Orange, which is fantastic. I couldn't, I cannot recommend Tropic of Orange highly enough to your readers. Mm. Um, it's a very, very funny Los Angeles novel um, in the tradition of many other novels, perhaps most importantly, uh, Nathaniel West's work, Day of the Locust, is one of my favorite writers. Um, it's a very funny novel. And in it, she just sends up the cultural politics of identity mm. as an Asian American woman writer. Um, just, but like, you know, kind of laughing at the stories and expectations we place upon people given their identities throughout the novel. She really makes it, um, uh, she really sends it up. And then in her, her, her next novel, I hotel, which is a masterpiece also extremely recommended. She's not as she's, she turns away from that irony and she goes back to the sixties and the moment when Asian mm. America, Asian American became an identity that people lived into and the kind of contradictions inherent in what do you, when you take a continent of so many different countries mm. and you place everyone that comes from that continent in a single identity, mm -hmm. um, there's all sorts of complications and tensions and contradictions um, that, that follow from that. Mm. Um, and thinking what are the political implications, the personal, the aesthetic implications of this origin point of Asian American as an identity um, is one of the many things that she does powerfully um, in the novel I Hotel. So yes, like writers of color have learned to be extremely canny um, mm. and creative in the ways they've dealt with the, the constraints placed upon them by the publishing industry, but the constraints are there. Thank you for that. Yeah, I mean, you know, some of the the tweets recently that have gone viral and, you know, all those stats out there that unfortunately, you know, publishing is still a very white male industry. White, white, white I can't say the word, white male dominated industry. And not much has has changed. There have been small, small changes, but a lot. It's long gotten long more. Ago. It's gotten. It, it's gotten more. Women have entered the the, the mm -hmm. publishing industry. You know, certainly there's still sexism in the industry, but more women have have gained power, mm -hmm. have positions of power, and have become editors compared to the '60s. That that's changed a lot. But in terms of um, whiteness, yeah, it's it's still an extremely white industry. I'm surprised that you're not like 80 years old. You're so young. And, you know, because the book covers so much, um, it's really such an interesting look at 
um, you know, the 20th, mid 20th century and on, and really how that does affect, you know, the books that are, that are on the bookshelf and back of me now, right? I think of like, um, I don't know enough about it, but I think about now a lot of people kind of joke about the really similar covers that you'll mm-hmm. see like on literary fiction, right? The, the color schemes and all that. And it just really does make you think more about the publishing industry. And, you know, you write a lot about how the editors in the old days, whenever that cut off, we're not quite sure, but, you know, in the old days they were editors and now they're editors and they're promoters and they're this and they're that. And they're, you know, um, and I know even I think about how authors and some, and especially with small presses, they're promoters too. And they have to have a mm-hmm. social media and, you know, those sometimes are written in their contracts and the whole deal. So for me, it's definitely, it will not diminish the love of reading. It's really interesting to me how much you cover in the book um, about all the different, the trade and the mass market and the history and these big old companies and kind of what's going on behind the scenes. Congrats on on the book. Um, again, people who are listening will hear it around the 24th or so when the book is out in the world. Any any special recommendations, places for us to buy the book? Um, you should buy the book at your local bookstore. That would be the thing that would make me happiest of all. Mm-hmm. Um, go in there, see if it's on the shelf. If it's not on the shelf, talk to your bookseller and, and have them order it into the bookstore. Um, for you, I love small bookstores. I love our, you know, the booksellers in, 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 uh, in any of the places where you might be listening. Yeah. Um, they do, they, they do, they do God's work. Um, so, so do that. Awesome. If we're in Atlanta, where should we be going? Uh, in Atlanta, there's a lot of options. Uh, there's acapella books. Um, there's Eagle Eye books. There's Virginia Highlands books. There's Bookish, which is the one right ac- around the corner from my own house. Mm-hmm. Um, those would be all uh, excellent bookstores. We are, we're blessed with a number of great bookstores here in Atlanta. Very cool. Very cool. Um, you know, obviously the book industry, just like so many industries, with you know, the writer strike has just ended and entertainment of all sorts. There's just so much going on with it. Amazon and Kindle and you know we talked you know Borders was mentioned in the book Borders is no longer around Walden Books is no longer around right no yeah long gone oh man I mean that was a name out of the past for sure I used to get those gift cards you know gift certificates when a gift certificate remember that it was actually like a piece of paper yeah <laughs> all right but the book is so interesting it, it covers so many years but it, you don't feel like it's being glossed over um you know the notes are speaking of Foster Wallace or Juno Diaz the footnotes are um, there's so many of them, right? As it's an academic pursuit, but just congratulations on the book. You made the, how the sausage is made very interesting. And, and I think I, I feel like it makes reading a book more interesting and more, more pleasurable. So congrats on the book. We wish you continued good luck with your, with the rest of your writing. Thanks so much, B. It's really been a pleasure to talk with you. An awesome talking to you. Thank you so much. so much to Dan. What a pleasure it's been today to speak to Dan Zinkin. Please go out and buy his book, which is out today, October 24th through Columbia University Press. You can now subscribe to the Chills of Will podcast on Apple Podcasts. Please leave a five-star review. You can also ask for it by name using Alexa and find it on Stitcher, Spotify, and on Amazon Music. Follow me on Instagram where I'm at Chills at Will Podcast or on Twitter where I'm at Chills at Will PO1. That's the number one. You can watch this and other episodes on YouTube. Watch and subscribe to the Chills at Will Podcast channel. 
Sign up now for the Chills of Will podcast Patreon. It can be found at patreon.com backslash Chills of Will podcast Peter Real. Check out the page that describes the benefits of a Patreon membership, including cool swag and bonus episodes. Thanks in advance for supporting my one-man show, my DIY podcast, and my extensive reading, research, editing, and promoting to keep this independent podcast pumping out high-quality content. Speaking of promoting, please, if you're going to join Patreon, awesome. If you're going to retweet an episode link, awesome. If you're going to promote through telling a friend, a bookish friend about the podcast, I really appreciate that. Again, this is a DIY podcast, and I appreciate any help that I can get. This is a passion project of mine, a DIY operation, and I'd love for your help in promoting what I'm convinced is a unique and spirited look in an often ignored art form. The intro song for the Chills of Will podcast is Wind Down Instrumental, and the other song played on the episode was Hoops Instrumental by White, Matt Whitehour, and both songs are used through archesaudio.com. Please tune in for episode 211 with Teresa Runstedler, award-winning scholar of African-American history. Her work focuses on the intersection of race and masculinity, labor and sport, and her most recent book is Black Ball, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Spencer Haywood, and the generation that saved the soul of the NBA. This episode will air on October 31st, Halloween. For now, thanks again for listening, and I hope that these uncertain days bring you texts by writers with mad skills, like Dan Sinekin, whose work, like Big Fiction, How Conglomeration Changed the Publishing Industry and American Literature, gives you chills at will. Thank you.